Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, prayer producers of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Join Eva Segalov, Craig Underhill and Hans Prennan as they chat through the latest papers. In today's episode, Eva talks us through the third iteration of Hannah Hans' hallmarks of cancer. Hans gets stuck into a phase two trial in pleural mesothelioma and a nature paper on her two positive gastric cancer. Craig then gives us a fascinating walk through FDA approvals in 2021. We've Quick Bites, the paper that changed my practice, and the amazing paper of the week. You'll find links to all of the papers, bios, and Twitter handles in the notes on our website. So join us for the most relaxed oncology education podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter using hashtag OJC. For regular news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day. It's OJC and we're back for another year of COVID and hopefully (laughs) (laughs) some good news, lots of learning, lots of great papers, lots of discussion. You hear it here, lots of banter. Back with my wonderful co-host Craig Underhill. How are you, Craig? Great to be back. I just wish we'd be able to say, woohoo, COVID's over. We're all having a great time socialising. And Eva, tell us about your hand. This is a real injury or are you just trying to upstage hands? No, I fight with a piece of glass. So I managed to slice my index finger, the artery. It's interesting watching the blood pulse out oh through the artery. God. And did my ligaments and too much information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. You okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. But it's my right index finger, so I've got to be very careful that it heals well. Mm. And I had a huge cast on, much more impressive earlier. Now I've gone to a little finger splint and, and I had to have my carpal tunnel done at the same time because otherwise my nerve wouldn't have recovered. Anyway, too much information. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> Professor Hans Prennan. Actually, my wrist is getting better, so uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> Are you still on the opiates? No, not not that, no. No, okay. And a quick wrap of the COVID situations. Australia, Victoria's just gone to a code brown, which I think means shitting themselves. <laughs> That's what they call it. How's things in Belgium? Uh, I could call it code red because we see a huge increase in number of infections, but not really hospitalization, especially not on intensive care. So this is the good news. But the bad news is that we are lacking personnel now. So, so there is a big question on how long we should quarantine everybody that got infected. Okay, let's get into it. Main papers. And I think I'm going to go first. Yes, Eva, tell us your main paper. This was a really landmark paper. Everyone has to read it. So everyone knows the little sort of horoscopy round diagram of the hallmarks of cancer. It's in every talk. It looks like a sort of horoscopy sort of wheel. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is the paper from Doug Hanahan, no? Yeah, yeah. 
So this is called The Hallmarks of Cancer, New Dimensions, and published in January 2022 by Doug Hanahan, who published the original one with Bob Weinberg in the year 2000. And it's become an iconic diagram that was proposed as a set of functional capabilities that human cells acquired on their journey from benign to malignant. Originally, there were six and then two more functional acquired capabilities were added. And these were the capacity for sustained proliferative signaling, number one, evading growth suppressors, number two, resisting cell death, three, enabling replicative immortality, four, inducing accessing vascular, five, activating invasion and metastasis, six, reprogramming cellular metabolism, seven, and then avoiding immune destruction, eight. And there were also two what they called enabling characteristics. One was genomic instability and the other was tumor-promoting inflammation. So this paper in 2022 has added some new tenants and the new tenants are phenotypic plasticity and disrupted differentiation, non-mutational epigenetic reprogramming, and the third one's polymorphic microbiome. So the phenotypic plasticity and disrupted differentiation he's proposed is a discrete hallmark capability, and the epigenetic reprogramming and the microbiome are distinctive enabling characteristics. And then there's one more, senescent cells of varying origins to be added to the roster of functionally important cell types in the tumour microenvironment. So every oncologist, every budding oncologist, everyone needs to read both the original paper from 2000 and this 2022. Update your diagram from the original to now the enhanced Hanahanogram. But I think, Eva, that there is, this is already the third update. There is some one in between. Eh? So there is somewhere a second one, and now this is already the third one. Third. I just third. wanted to make you say yeah. that. <laughs> the code brown one. But I must say, Eva, I think the first one was for me quite understandable. But now this last one, for me, it becomes quite complex to understand what it means with all this plasticity and this microbiome things. Because before it was gain of function or growth factors that stimulate, etc. It's quite easy, but now it's becoming quite complex. Don't you agree? It is very complex. What's your main paper? So Eva, I selected uh, two main papers this week. And the first one is something in mesothelioma. It's a tumor type that I rarely treat. I sometimes... I treat peritoneal mesoteliomas, but this is about plural mesoteliomas. A phase three, a phase two trial, sorry, that was published in Nature Medicine, November 2021, with Jovalumab and platinum pemetrexate, so classical chemotherapy plus an anti-PD-1. You know that there are not many options for metastatic mesothelioma, and they reported the results. They treated 55 patients first line, so untreated, unresectable. And the overall survival in this study was 20.4 months. And they compared with historical controls. I usually don't really like this kind of approach, but still, yeah, it's it's a phase two non-comparative study. And they say, okay, now it's 20 months versus 12 months historical control. So this data is very promising. 
But then I looked in the literature a little bit, what do the guidelines say? And there maybe Craig can help me. He knows this probably better than me. Is they advise for non-epithelary to give nivolumab plus ibilimumab. So there is already an immune combo there. And for epitheloids, they say, okay, combo chemo with or without bevacizumab. So for me, it's not really clear, although this is a paper published in Nature Medicine, what the place will be of nivolumab plus platinum and pemetrexate. But maybe Craig can help me there. Yeah, well, it's interesting paper, Hans. I think, though, that, you know, we need more phase three studies, really, to guide us as a phase two. Do you see much mesothelioma in... In Belgium, of course, Australia has really high incidence because of the mines, where they mine them asbestos, especially in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. We see quite some, especially in this Antwerp region, but it's also because we have a specialist in our hospital that sees a lot of mesothelioma, but I don't treat them myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the second paper I looked at was, uh, of course, also a paper in Nature, published in December 2021. And it was called the Keynote 811 trial. As you know, this is a combination of dual anti-PD-1 and HER2 in HER2-positive gastric cancer. I don't have to teach you that HER2 amplification is present in about, let's say, 20% of gastric or junction adenocarcinomas. And we all treat them now with chemo plus trastuzumab. And yeah, the weird thing was that adding pembrolizumab to chemo did not make a big difference in her to negative cancer. So then it's really, I think, a bit of risk eh, to do a study where you add pembrolizumab to trastuzumab and to chemotherapy. And in this paper, they just published it are the results of the protocol pre-specified first interim analysis. This is a randomized phase two. It is placebo-controlled. And they published the data of the first 264 patients. And what was the result? That And they looked at response rate because the data is not final yet. But the response rate showed 74% response in the pembrolizumab arm and 51 in the placebo arm. And some patients even had a complete response. And this was amazing, I think. So I think when the study is completed, this could be a complete paradigm shift in this group of patients. But of course, as I said, we still need PFS OS data when the study will be complete. But I'm a big believer in this combination. Hans, why do you think it was a risk to combine them, you said? Yeah, because we had already the data with pembrolizumab plus chemo, which was not they are fantastic. So you don't expect that when you combine pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab that you will get maybe an extra effect. Okay. So it's like we're twins because you put up a paper and I can tell an anecdote. So today we had the site initiation visit for an international phase three study, which is chemo plus trastuzumab plus or minus a checkpoint inhibitor in this group of patients. So so the phase three studies are already underway. It's a different yep. company, different mm-hmm. products, but it's interesting, isn't it? So again, that will be a landmark study. The recruitment goes for a couple of years. As this is rare cancer, right? So they've got like sixty sites around the world. But yeah, we had our site initiation visit for that today. So really interesting to hear this data. Yeah, it's very promising. I think a negative neoadjuvant study in this setting published as well for uh, esophageal cancer. Really. So, Hans, why did they publish in Nature, do you think, and not one of the oncology journals for this interesting choice of place? 
I'm really surprised that I see more and more of these clinical papers in either nature or nature medicine. I think it's because of impact factor that they, that they try these journals. But I'm also surprised that they accept it that quickly because for me, nature is really something which is novel, novel, novel. Yeah, of course, you can say it's promising. Hmm. Yeah, but this could fit also, let's say, GCO paper, of course. Yeah, well, that's right. Anyway, interesting. So what have you got, Craig? Well, I've got a bit of a ploy of various things. So I thought and we could have a bit of a discussion about this. So, you know, I like to do some overview. So I just found this interesting paper from the ASCO Post, and it's a summary of the FDA approvals for 2021. It'd be nice just to have a look at all the products that were approved by the FDA and why for 2021. So it's really quite fascinating. So next time you'll have something from the local Aubrey uh, Times, will you? We're getting (laughs) the journal's a bit hard for you, Oh, no, no, no. I've got some journal pay. Oh, well, I don't have to do this if you don't want. No, no, I think it's – no, it's actually a great paper. I'm joking. Good. Excellent. So firstly, a few adjuvant studies. And, of course, was there overall survival data for these? No. So there's a TZO's adjuvant treatment for – non-small cell lung cancer, uh, approved on the basis of a progression-free survival advantage. There is abiaclimib in combination with endocrine therapy for breast cancer. Abemocyte. Thank you, which is based on the Monarch-E study. Again, approved on the basis of a benefit for invasive disease-free survival. Another adjuvant study in GU cancer, pembrolizumab for adjuvant treatment of renal cell. Again, a little bit controversial, but quite a big progression-free survival advantage. Hazard ratio 0.68, leading to the approval. Then in cervix cancer, not one but two new indications. Pembro in combination with platinum-based chemotherapy for cervix cancer. This actually did have an overall survival advantage. So, Improvement in response rate, medium duration of response, progression-free survival, and overall survival. So we'll give that a big tick. But a new drug in recurrent or metastatic cervix cancer, this is tezotumab vedotin TFTV. So and this is one of those antibody conjugates. It's a tissue factor-directed antibody plus a microtubule inhibitor conjugate. So, you know, we're seeing more and more of those coming through. So that's based on a phase two study. Overall response had 24% duration and response eight months, and that was given approval. An orphan drug, cabazantinib for previously treated radioiodine refractory differentiated thyroid cancer. So again, completely new indication. Then cetuximab with encorafenib in BRAF V600E mutation positive metastatic colorectal cancer. You'd be familiar with this paper, you guys. So again, was there an overall survival advantage? No. No. But it's just been put on the PBS, PBS update in Australia. So first line, we can get it or refer for a trial. We've got a, a BRAF first line trial. So it was the two, so no chemo, the cetuximab and carafenib versus cetux, IRI or cetux for fury, eight months versus five months disease-free survival. So would you use it in your practice? Yep. Fesses? Yep. Tick. We have no access now because, yeah, we had access, but it was redrawn, so we have to wait a little bit until there's a bit more data. Yeah. Two new drugs in 
cholangiocarcinoma. What were they, Hans? Infogratinib. Ivocitinib. Yes, there you go. So ivocitinib versus placebo, progression-free survival, hazard ratio 0.37, overall survival not reached, 70% of the patients crossed over, so that was approved. And the other one, Eva, was there a survival advantage? Infogratinib. No. no, it was a phase two, wasn't it? A phase two study, mm. 23% response rate, duration of five months. So that that's for patients with a fibroblast growth factor receptor 2 fusion. So niche product approved. If it was available, would you use it? Yep. Yes. Because the chemo outcomes are pretty average, right? And then a new anti-PD-1 for any DMMR recurrent or advanced tumours. So dostalamib, G-L-X-Y, so a tumor agnostic approval from the FDA. Lots of new drugs in the lung cancer space, not one but two drugs for EGFR exon 20 insertion mutation non-small cell lung cancer. So mobisertinib, we covered that off in a previous episode, plus avivantinab, VMJW, another bispecific antibody against the EGFR and exon 20 mutations and MET as well. Sotiracib for KRAS G12C mutated lung cancer. So lung cancer was really a start. Can I just say, I think we should have had a warning to our listeners in New Zealand to skip this part because they'll never get any of these. <laughs> Sorry, CJ. And then esophageal or gastroesophageal junction cancers. Nivolumab for completely resected with residual pathological disease who've received neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy. Are you using that, Hans, in Europe? Yes, that's now reimbursed here. Yep. Right, because that's available on our access program here. Pembro combination for HER2-positive gastric cancer. So in first line, that's Keynote 811. So again, that was based on response rate, 74% versus 52. No difference in progression-free survival or overall survival, but approved by the FDA. Nimvolumab for gastric cancer. So that was in combination with fluoropyrimidine platinum-containing chemotherapy for advanced disease. It's Checkmate 649. That did have a overall survival advantage. It was enormous, 11 months versus 14 months. So interesting approval. It's a step forward. And that was regardless of CPS or pdl one level. So, again, is that in use in Europe, Hans, approved? Yes. It's under an access program here. I think a lot of people are doing it. Endometrial cancer, Dostalamib GXLY, another, this is for the mismatch repair gene deficient patients. Sasituzumab Govatecan for urothelial cancer, and the same drug for pre treated patients breast with cancer. triple negative breast cancer. That's it. And then nearly done. Tivozanib for advanced renal cell carcinoma, a new tyrosine kinase inhibitor shown to have a small progression-free survival advantage compared to serofinib. Lorlatinib for metastatic ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. Sepilumumab, not just for non-small cell lung cancer, but also for skin cancers. Tepotinib for non-small cell lung cancer. That's for MET exon 14 skipping alterations. Nivolumib carbazantinib for renal cell carcinoma. There's a lot of interest in these checkpoint inhibitors plus TKIs in various cancers. 
And then last but not least, Hans's favourite, Regugalax. 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 So that was approved. So that is a direct inhibitor of the hormone pathway acting at the pituitary level. So rather than getting surge of hormones, it blocks the production of male hormones in men with prostate cancer. So you don't need a co-inhibitor to deal with the flare and it's oral and it has some advantages in terms of cardiovascular side effects with biological plausibility and apparent clinical effects. So that will be, I think, probably a paradigm changing drug in the clinic because there's a lot of men that come in every month or every three months to have their injections that won't need to do that. There you go. Amazing year. Yeah, no, look, certainly, I mean, they're not without controversy. There's no cost-effectiveness data, but certainly there's lots of targeted agents and we've got to remember that, you know, some patients do exceptionally well and we always quote median PFS, et cetera. So it's all about how you use them. That's right. And we did cover a lot of that in the Journal Club, so it's interesting also to look back of what we've picked and then what is you know, popular, and there was another ASCO Post article on the most read articles of the year, and there was one about Tabentafusp for the uveal melanoma, which we talked about. So we'll put a link to that as well so people can look at what were the most read articles for the year. Hey, can we have a year without a click on the link or or a swearing jar? No. Yeah. Off. Okay. <laughs> All right, five bucks, thanks. You're going to have to bleep that out, please, Rachel. No, leave it in. That was a bit imprudent of me. No, no, leave it in. We have no editing this year. (laughs) Radio. So short bites for me. On the theme of the Hanahan paper, there was a Nature publication in December 2020 but worth looking at, and they it's the whole issue focuses on 14 milestones for cancer, and it's written in quite lay-type language, so really worth reading. I'll go through the 14. Number one, roots to resistance. Number two, liquid biopsy. Number three, when cancer prevention goes viral. Number four, synthetic lethality. What's that again, Craig? Well, that's when the PARP inhibitor knocks out the other repair pathway after BRCA patients already have lost homologous repair. Well, it's a bit more general, but you get full marks for that. So it's where you've got co-occurring mutations in two genes that kill cells, whereas the mutation in either gene alone does not and would give you a milder phenomenon. Okay, number five is cellular senescence. Number six is aerobic glycolysis. Number seven is NGS of the cancer genome. Number eight is the immune system, unleashing the immune system. Number nine is T-cell engineering. Number 10 is oncohistones as the epigenetic drivers of cancer. Number 11 is tumour evolution from linear paths to branched trees. And number 12, interestingly, is the AI revolution in cancer. So this is nature, milestones. It's really worth reading. There's just a page on each of those describing what they are and what impact they've had. All right, so now 
Craig, I've got another. No, I'll ask one. This one for Hans. Hans, what is an iceberg plot? I know what a spaghetti plot is, but an iceberg plot, I don't know. What other plots do you know, Craig? Waterfalls. Yeah. Forests. Yep. Swimmers. Yeah. Okay, so this is really interesting. Published in Europe. Are you able to orally explain a iceberg plot? I'm being impressed. I will. Okay. So this is was published in the European Journal of Cancer in November uh, 2021, and the article is entitled "The Iceberg Plot: Improving the Visualization of Therapy Response in Oncology in the Era of Sequence Directed Therapy." So the authors say that our current graphic representations do not have any information on prior therapy or prior therapy response. So they invented something called the iceberg plot, which is a new graph. And if you read the paper, they go through clinical trials and at sequence directed therapy and show how their iceberg plot. So if you've had previous therapy and it worked, it's on the higher side of the x-axis and if it hasn't, it's on the lower side and you can stack them up. So for each patient, you can see how many prior therapies they've had and whether they were effective or not. So it's quite a good way of showing which subgroups of patients may benefit. So I thought that was very interesting. And then my final short bite is something for you, Hans. Now, you've just been made head of department many years after Craig and I. So I thought that he's a little bit needed. younger, though. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Thanks, Craig. He looks older. I thought you needed some coaching in this. So here we go. This is from the Journal of Health Organisation and Management, December 2021, and it's an Australian study, a qualitative study of hospital clinical staff perceptions of their interactions with healthcare middle managers. So they did 73 semi-structured interviews of clinical staff from Australian Public Health Service in the ED, the surgery and the psychiatry departments. The findings were that most clinicians considered their interactions with middle management to be negative based on a violation of their expectations of support in the workplace and clinical staff perceptions of management were a lack of capacity and a lack of fit for the needs for the staff to perform their roles. So not a surprise, but good to see this stuff is being studied. Mm. Mm. So we're sending the team over to your hospital yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. What was the name of the journal, Eva? So the Journal of Health Organisation and Management. Wow, cool. I do have another short bite, actually, and it is interesting. For those of you who can't see, because this is a podcast, Hans is rolling his eyes and throwing up his hands. <laughs> so adaptive dosing of nivolumab and ipilimumab immunotherapy based on early interim radiographic assessment in advanced melanoma, the ADAPT-IT study. I love this trial design. So standard treatment in advanced melanoma is four doses of Nevo and Ipi and then continue the Nevo alone. How do we get to four? You know, we love 
even numbers. I want to do a trial where there are nine cycles versus five, you know, poor old odd numbers. But this trial, ADAPTIT, standing for Adaptively Dosed Immunotherapy Trial, multi-centre single arm phase two, all patients got Ipinevo for two doses and then they had a CT scan at week six and if they had no new lesions or an indexed tumour growth of no growth on their scan, they had protocol-defined early favourable anti-tumour effect called FATE, favourable anti-tumour effect. So they ceased the ipinevo and went to nevo after two, and the patients who did not have FATE went on to have the third and fourth, and the primary endpoint was response rate by resist at week 12. So they had 60 patients. 68% achieved the fate at week six and met the criteria for early stopping. And there was a difference in the median progression-free survival and overall survival, but also a difference in toxicity. So the conclusion was that all the hard heavy lifting happens in the first two cycles and we really should move to just like we're doing personalised or precision therapy, we need to look at precision response and stopping earlier or de-escalating earlier. And that is it for me except for an amazing paper at the end. So Hans, what have you got? I got really some short bites because I think this, I thought this part was short bites, but it seems quite long. So I selected two He's short enthusiastic, bites. Hans. Yeah. He's very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, Craig, I published quite some papers on also Barrett esophagus in, in the past. I studied some, especially because I was interested in the evolution from Barrett to adenocarcinoma. So what are the risk factors? So that's why I was interested in this paper published in Gastroenterology where they say that yeah, the major challenge is to identify this very small group with Barrett that will progress to cancer. And they developed an immunostochemistry score for P53, because P53 was already known to be a bad marker, but they made their own scoring and they validated this prospectively and found that this was indeed a very good factor to predict which ones will develop to cancer. And this is regardless of the diagnosis of dysplasia. So it is very inexpensive, so not everything has to be expensive, and it's a very easy marker that could be integrated in, into clinical practice. The second paper, and again, we were discussing why so many papers get in nature medicine, so I'm also a bit surprised this one got into nature medicine. It's about circulating tumor DNA, which guides us for her to amplified metastatic colon treated with pertuzumab plus trastuzumab. So what they show actually, to keep it short, is that you can use circulating tumor DNA to detect for HER2 amplification, and that this marker is as good as a tissue marker, and it can also be used to monitor disease response, because there's already a decreased ctDNA fraction three weeks after treatment, and this was associated with response. So in the future, we can also use this during treatment and to know which patients have benefit and which have not. I can't wait for that to come into clinical practice. I mean, it yeah. needs to be validated and studied, but gee, it's going to be great, isn't it? Indeed. We'll need a whole lot 
of communication strategies, though, around people where their markers, their ctDNA hasn't fallen, and then what do you do? Do you abandon the treatment? So it's like good news if it's falling, but what do you do if not? So, Craig, do you also have some short bites this week? I have some really short, short bites. So the first one was a paper that's a review of where we're up to with advanced lung cancer, first-line immunotherapy for non-small cell lung cancer. So it's not a really practical guide, but for the lung cancer geeks, this is a great review summarizing really all of the data that we have in this field. But just a couple of take-home messages, monotherapy versus combination in pd one high. There's still evidence really that for patients with more indolent disease or less symptom burden that you can opt to do single-agent immunotherapy and leave out the chemo. That's not exactly news to people who treat a lot of lung cancer. A lot of interest, as I mentioned before, about multi-targeted TKIs moving forward. The field of immunochemotherapy combinations versus immunotherapy combinations is, again, we're still waiting for readouts from more studies. We really don't know whether you need two immunotherapy drugs, whether that influences long-term survival or not or just adds the toxicity. And moving forward, as I mentioned, interest in multi-TKIs and pd one blockade. A lot of interest also in TIGIT inhibitors, as there is in other cancers, and also the LAG3 plus or minus chemo and pd one PD-1. So anyway, good review for the lung cancer geeks. And my last quick bite Hans, you can help me out here. So this was a study. It's a retrospective post hoc analysis of Empower 150, looking at the efficacy of first line of TESO combination therapy in patients with non-small cell lung cancer receiving proton pump inhibitors. And so some evidence, and there's some other studies with similar post hoc analysis, showing that if you were treated with a PPI, that may be a negative prognostic marker if you're receiving a checkpoint inhibitor. And they talk about, you know, this disruption of the microbiome and may have an influence. So do you think that's real, Hans, or do you think it's something we should consider? So this came up, this was actually sent in by a listener, big shout out to a research nurse in Brisbane whose name is Louise, Louise Underhill, my sister. So she sent this through. <laughs> oh, oh, you were going so well. <laughs> so no, she sent it through you because it. No, she did a startup. And you Dear it. Louise, please send this through so I can <laughs> She sent it to me. She, said she gets, she's been canvassing her colleagues to listen to the podcast. So she actually, this was paper was mentioned in a site initiation visit for an atezolizumab study, and they were recommending that patients on PPI should come off the drug. Wow. Mm. So thanks, Lou. Yeah, thanks, Lou. We've definitely covered some data, I think, in abstract form with this before. So it's interesting that there are more and more. But, you know, one of the things I love about Twitter are the all the ones where it's cause and effect. You know, so you've got a little sparrow sitting on a broken bridge right in the middle and it's, do you know those sort of memes, yeah. Craig? Yes. You're up to yep. um, 400 followers, aren't you? 1,122, Eva. How many do you have? Oh, that's way more than me. I think I'm about 700. What about you, Hans? 42 or something like that. <laughs> Three? Somewhere in between 200 and 300. Yeah. 
please follow me on Twitter. I need more Twitter followers. <laughs> oh, shout out. Follow. Let's have a campaign. And a big hello to our mate Christos Karapetis, who was an author on that paper too. Oh, wow. Great. Okay, an amazing paper of the week. Guess what? You're still going to hear about gender equity in 2022. Oh, my God. Oh. Again. Again. Eye roll. Yeah. Eye roll emoji. Published December the 8th, 2021 in JAMA Surgery, the Association of Surgeon-Patient Sex Concordance with Postoperative Outcomes. So this paper looked at 1.3 million patients treated by almost 3,000 surgeons in Ontario between 2007 and 2019. About 600,000 were sex concordant with their surgeon. So male surgeon, male patient, that was 500,000. And female surgeon with female patient, 92,000. So about the other half were discordant. And most of those, of course, were a male surgeon with a female patient. And there were only 50,000 where you had a female surgeon with a male patient. Now, of all these 1.3 million patients, 15% experienced one or more what they call an adverse postoperative outcome, which was defined as death readmission or complication within 30 days following surgery. And when they did an analysis, there were worse outcomes for female patients treated by male surgeons, but not male patients treated by female surgeons. So you can laugh, you can scoff, you can roll your eyes, but I'm not going away and this is my potty and we're going to hear about this till the cows come home because there is a lot of implicit bias and subconscious bias and this is big, big data. Ontario has fantastic mass data and data linkage so they can do really sophisticated studies. What do you think of that, Hans? So was it a male or female surgeon that your surgery? For your My health. finger surgery. Yes. Please ring in if you know a female plastic surgeon in, in Melbourne because I could only find male, but I was just happy I got it done in COVID yeah. as a Category 1. But, look, you know, I think there is a lot of issues here with people complaining of pain. I mean, it wouldn't be you because you whinge so much about your pain. Even your male surgeon had to <laughs> give you opiates. But, you know, if a female patient complains of pain, I had to ask for pain relief going home from ED with the finger bandage up waiting for surgery the next day with a laceration through to the bone. I had to ask, can you give me some pain relief, please? You know, would they have given a male who knows? But I think watch out, everyone, for intrinsic biases and let, let's try and clean up this huge gender inequity mess. Craig, you're asleep. No, I'm just doing some online shopping. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Buying a sex doll. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, Helen. His, his sister is listening. <laughs> yeah. She, she'll be freaking out. Hi, Lou. <laughs> Hey, uh, what do you think for 2022? Do you think OJC will be as strong as ever in Belgium? We, we're rising exponentially the number of listeners. You know. I know because there's next to the case, Corona caseload website, there's one that says Belgian <laughs> listeners of uh, <laughs> OJC and it posts every day. It's going up exponentially. Yep. Fantastic. Fantastic. 
very glad to have you with me, Chandra Diwakarla, discussing the paper that changed my practice. Also, she's a member of the Yoga Young Oncology Group Australia. And Chandra, please tell us which paper did you select? Yeah, so I've chosen a fairly old paper from 2010 from the New England Journal of Medicine, Early Palliative Care for Patients with Metastatic Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Okay, and a lot has changed for lung cancer in the past decade, let's say. So what was this paper about? So this paper was looking at early palliative care intervention or at least introduction of palliative care to patients who are diagnosed with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. So not necessarily only looking at palliative care. So it's for all patients receiving systemic treatment, but allowing them opportunity to meet with palliative care and have symptom control from the outset of their diagnosis. I fully agree that it's something that we, at least some oncologists don't look at enough. I have a colleague actually in my hospital, also lung oncologist, who's focusing really a lot on early palliative care, early supportive care. So what were then the conclusions of the paper? What should we do? Yeah, so, I mean, this paper was quite interesting and I think it's very relevant even now with, you know, lots of changes in lung cancer treatment. It basically showed that patients who had early palliative care interventions had much better quality of life, so patient-reported outcomes. But interestingly, they showed that these patients had an increased overall survival, even though in general they had less aggressive systemic treatments, which sort of points to the fact that particularly in something like lung cancer, getting the symptoms and quality of life and psychological side of things correct early on has got significant impact on your overall outcomes. And is then the focus, let's say, on how you guide these patients with like psychological care? Or is there a focus on, let's say, supportive care, pain management, other stuff? So what is the focus on? Yeah, so they looked at a range of different interventions. So for some people, it did involve pain relief. But a lot of the patient sort of interventions included mood So looking at how to improve people's mood with earlier psychosocial interventions, ensuring that they had good pain relief. Interestingly, the depression scales were much lower in the patients who had early palliative care intervention, but the overall prescriptions for antidepressants were actually quite equal amongst the two groups. So even when you were being treated in a similar fashion, the patients who had access to palliative care felt better so it was a sort of more holistic approach. So actually, the main conclusion is that we should, yeah, as I think everybody knows, but not everybody's doing, really multidisciplinary approach with every new patient with cancer. Is that well summarized? Yes, I think so. And, you know, even now amongst my own colleagues, some of us are a little bit hesitant to bring palliative care into the picture early, but from what I've seen clinically, it actually helps a lot because when you get to that really difficult end stage discussion, if you've introduced palliative care right from the beginning, it's not such a scary process. Okay, thank you, Chandra, for this very, very important message. And I think it's indeed a message that we should give to all oncologists. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Who knows what the hell this year's got in store for us, but 
keep listening. You'll at least hopefully have a few laughs and be up to date with the latest in trials and all sorts of other related issues, translational, political, gossip, anything you like in the field of oncology. Gender equity. Don't forget. Gender equity. Good. See you later. Bye Bye bye. for now. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.